What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. It is episode 44. I'm Carlos Glazo, joined as always by Ben Badler here on this Thursday, March 23rd. And the World Baseball Classic is behind us, Ben. Pretty good final few games in that event. How are you doing, man? I feel like a little depressed because I it was Wednesday night and I was like, wait, what? What do I do now? <laughs> I've just been watching incredible baseball games every night for the last few nights, especially going back to that USA-Venezuela game. Yeah, that uh, game, I was at a wedding, and I was the person who was like at a table at reception <laughs> watching the game on my phone. So I was definitely that guy at this wedding, but I don't think it was too frowned upon. And I even had some people come over and like some guys who were clearly – into like just chilling out and watching sports so that was a lot of fun to watch seeing the the Trey Turner home run and actually it's funny because the bride at the wedding went to NC State uh so she was pretty pumped when she found out that that Trey Turner hit the home run so that was yeah cool. it's wild that he hit five home runs and I, and wasn't not only was he not the MVP but like probably I don't know would a Rosa Reina even still go ahead of him I don't know how they ended up doing the final voting but Otani. I mean, just yeah, yeah. It was Otani was the MVP, mm-hmm. and then, but there were so many big moments from Trey Turner who hit. Yeah, <laughs> noted noted superstar slugger as we all expected back when he was at NC State. Trey Turner was just going absolutely bonkers through that tournament, and then you have the Randy Arozarena catch that's like rivals the Adam Jones catch robbing the home run adam jones even kind of passed the crown to randy rosarina he tweeted like oh no more adam jones it's it's the randy show or something like that so yeah he was he was a ton of fun to watch it it felt like too he got a ton of balls hit his way i don't know if that was just us like noticing the catch and then every time maybe without that really impressive home run robbery that we wouldn't think too much of the routine catches he had but it did feel like he had a ton of action throughout that game um but i thought those two baseball games were specifically i'm referring to i guess we even include the three the the cuba united states semifinal game was the least competitive um of the of the kind of final games venezuela versus america was was really tight and really close obviously trey turner's late home run elevating the u.s to the next round the mexico japan semifinal game I think that was objectively the best game of the entire WBC because that game just had everything. We had great pitching at first, like an elite prospect in Roki Sasaki, who we've all been kind of anticipating. He really lived up to what we all expected, missed with one pitch and allowed a home run. It was back and forth. It was a lot of scoring. It was it was fun action in the field defensively. It just had so much. It was back and forth. Um, very tightly contested. I thought the final between Japan and the United States was mostly we were just kind of cruising for the first six innings or so, and it was it was kind of fine. And then building up to the Shohei Otani Mike Trout matchup, kind of everyone anticipating it potentially happening, and then realizing I think in the seventh inning when Trout got out, it was like okay, this could come down to Trout in the ninth inning. Then realizing that Shohei Otani was pitching, like. There was a lot of tension and buildup in that game that really paid off in a good way at the end. Um, and 
I know a lot of people have talked about it this week. We're probably late getting in on the WBC commentary just because of our, our podcast schedule, but it really feels like a Shoyotani, Mike Trout at bat in that moment, U.S. down one in the ninth inning, two outs, full count. Like It's exactly how you write it up if you want to just put together the, the coolest at-bat that you could think of. And I don't know that it's surprising that, that Shohei Otani came out on top. The pitchers are always at the advantage here. But, man, that at-bat was so much fun. But overall, just just an excellent World Baseball Classic. I had a blast watching all of these games. I was, I was really glad that I was able to see more. I know early on when the... The timing was a little iffy, and we were working on getting out the BA 300 for the draft, which is on the site now. If you're listening to this podcast, you can check that out. But it was really cool just to be able to sit down on the couch, watch some final tournament games in this event, and have them not only live up to your expectations, but really exceed them. And just hearing from people from my friend group who are not typically baseball fans who are really into it and excited and learning about these players, I just thought it was an an awesome moment for baseball overall. And I, I really can't wait for the next one. Yeah. And that three, two slider that Otani threw to trout was just like the nastiest slider yeah. you could throw. It's like two hundred mile per hour fastballs that trout swings through. And I thought they were really good swings on both of those heaters that he just kind of missed. I don't know if he was later just under the ball, but three, two after you see those fastballs and then like, I think it was like 15 inches or something of break on the slider on the black. It's like a perfect sequence, really. Well, and like going into the game too, I was like, why don't why don't they just use Otani as the opener? So you guarantee that he gets in. I'm so glad they didn't. Do and that. he faces the top of the lineup. Not that there's like, you know, some glaring hole at the bottom of the lineup for USA. But it's like, all right, you guarantee he's in there. He can warm up on his normal schedule instead of having him like, (laughs) as we saw, like jogging back and forth from the bullpen to the dugout, which was just hilarious. But obviously, I'm so glad that did not happen. Did you see? (laughs) I I didn't see him jogging a ton. Like, I saw a couple clips of him like walking out to the bullpen, but I thought it was hilarious. Just the commentary about him having to go back and forth. People were like, oh, what is this going to do to Otani if he has to do this? I'm like, the whole entire tournament, we've been talking about what an athletic marvel Shohei Otani is. How he's, <laughs> like, he's like one of the greatest athletes in the world. And all of a sudden, we're we're fearing for him because he has to slowly jog out to the bullpen and back to the dugout. That made no sense. Like what? It was going to affect his stamina? For... Yeah, like, <laughs> come gonna... on. Like, we, we have such a different baseline of what what is required for baseball players because they just don't have to run ever that we're worried about him jogging to the bullpen. And again, this is like arguably one of the best athletes we've ever seen. Like if that affects him, he deserves to have some negative effect because that's a very, that's a very low requirement for you to do as an athlete. He also had just spent eight innings playing as a position player. Yes. And also (laughs) after, after we had all of this, he he beats out a ground ball and runs an above average time from the left-handed batter's box. I don't remember if he was he was called safe initially as challenged and upheld, right? That was a pretty bang bang play. But I'm like clearly this is not affecting him. He's he's fine. Like let's not get let's not get too crazy. We don't need to carry Otani out on some sort of cart so he's uh 
not impacted when he gets on the mound. Clearly, he was just fine. The bullpen. The, I, I would. I would like a reverse bullpen car. A car to take the guy out to the bullpen because he's because <laughs> he's been. He was just hitting. Yeah, it just like flies out for the third out, and someone picks him up like in the middle of the infield and drives into the bullpen. That would be kind of funny. But I was interested too in there. There were some commentary about the lack of a pitch clock kind of amplified that moment and some people were like maybe we don't have the pitch clock in the ninth inning of games if they fall within a certain parameter I would actually be open to that because and maybe if if we had a pitch clock the whole game that moment still would have been just as cool and we wouldn't have really noticed it but sometimes I think it's really cool when you can have that tension kind of building in between pitches Getting the shots between Trout at the plate and Otani on the mound and the teammates and the fans going crazy. The tempo never felt, and this is always the case with baseball, I think, when when the game is compelling, the tempo always feels fine because you're very invested and it, it doesn't really bother me to wait a few extra seconds. But do you think that the pitch clock would have made that moment any less cool? And do you think there should be, like if you were in charge of the rules, would you want some sort of stipulation about maybe lessening the pitch clock rules or even removing it entirely in these kind of situations? Well, I would like to see how it plays out in the ninth inning of close games during the regular season first. Yeah. So it's well, something I'd be... think that that could be replicated with a regular season game? Like, like it almost feels like maybe maybe for playoffs you just do away with it in those situations, but I don't know. Well, I, I, that's the thing is we have a lot of time to go before the playoffs, so I'd like to see how it works in those situations. We've seen it, obviously, in minor league games, but it's not the same thing. It's not the same intensity yeah. as a major league game. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is one of the takes that I loved was when people would say... See, yeah, see how awesome the WBC was without pitch clocks? Now, why do we need pitch clocks during the regular season? Like, look how awesome those games were. And it's like, yeah, dude, we all we need to do is replicate a high-intensity <laughs> four-game round-robin where Single you really— yeah, where well, you can't afford to lose more than one game. Yeah, have a you know have a series of do or die, must win games where you have an all star team of players representing their country yeah. in a high intensity tournament, and just keep that going for 162 games every day, pretty much nonstop for six months. Yes, I agree. If every game was like that, then we would not need a pitch clock. Might need some medication, but we wouldn't need pitch clocks. <laughs> Uh, if we were able to have that. But, I mean, I don't know if you've seen a Yankees-Red Sox game <laughs> during the regular season on Sunday Night Baseball. Like, yeah, I think I think the pitch clock is going to be beneficial uh, for, for everybody. But, you know, like you said, it's something I'm open to modifying it and seeing how things go during the regular season and and adjust from there maybe in in the ninth inning in in the playoffs or uh maybe even during the second half of the regular season based on on what we see during the the first part of the season yeah i mean how glad were you also that we didn't have to go into extra innings and see the oh my god tiebreaker rule because i know that you was asked about that while we were kind of seeing it all play out like wondering if that was actually in place and that was in the, all the international competitions that's kind of the standard way you do it yeah i mean that's the international extra inning rule yeah. 
is <laughs> I, I was thinking about that definitely in the finals. And I think it was the USA Venezuela game too, or maybe it was the Mexico Japan game where I was like, Oh God, like these games are so good. Please do not like, it's weird to be rooting for it to not go into extra innings yeah, just so that we don't have that goofy the runner on second base. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, everybody is super invested in the game. They're on the edge of their seats. <laughs> if we, if they had brought in a runner to go on second base, I think, I think the entire stadium of both teams' fans would have just been booing and throwing stuff on the field. And <laughs> well, certainly that would happen if if the first runner scored from that. But I think if you had like a, a full inning where the runner didn't score either time, people would just be more stressed out. Certainly people who were invested in which team is winning, it's only amplifying your stress. I think you're probably more, you would probably be more against it than most, I would guess. I'm curious I don't what know. the reaction would be to people. I think it would be scenario. a much bigger storyline if Japan beat USA, or, or the other way around, doesn't really matter who wins, but if they, if the WBC ended based on the extra inning runner on second base rules. I I think people, I think that would be a much bigger talking point of like, Hey, this is like a Mickey mouse rule way (laughs) to end the way to end this supposedly great tournament that, you know, and there's this like infighting of like, should you care about the WBC or not? Which is like this very bizarre talking point to me. Like, I don't know if you, if you like it, great. I love it. If you don't, that's fine. I, I there are a million other things you could go do with your time. <laughs> go ahead. I do think that's a good point that we don't have this kind of sour note to potentially end on if that did happen with, with some narratives and some controversy coming out of it because it, it, it really felt like once the event ended, there was a massive... I felt like there was a massive amount of positive um, just energy and discussion about baseball overall because the games are so good and, and because we had some really big moments with massive stars, it seems like the reception to the event, both in terms of in-person attendance, the, the TV ratings that I've seen, it seems just kind of beneficial all around. And I also think that the best team in this event won, which is always nice when that happens. And I hope that because of the reception and because of the attention of the event and how much passion there was about the event this year i really hope that more american pitchers will will think about taking part next time because it was very cool to see some of the best japanese pitchers in the country join the team and i think that was clearly a difference maker um with with how these teams operated i mean it, it really felt like team usa was operating with kid gloves with a lot of the pitchers it's kind of weird to think about some of the players who were on the mound in, in some of these games um, and clearly, the U.S. cannot just put out a, I don't know what you would call it, a B or C team based on the pitching staff and expect to win. You're not just going to come into this event and roll people over just because you're Team USA. I think that's that's a good thing, and it kind of shows the talent of the rest of, of the world, really, in this sport. Yeah, it's. I don't want to wait until 2026 for the next one. I, I would love it if they had the WBC every other year i mean maybe don't do it every year and leave a little bit of space in between to make it more special 
And you obviously have to have the qualifying events as well around it. So that's part of why you need to space them out a little bit more too. But it's not, again, like it's not that long of a tournament. It's not like it's an entire month of March where you're playing in the WBC. It's like, what, 10 days (laughs) or so? So I would love it to be in every other year type of thing. It feels like the perfect length, actually. Like right now I'm, I'm thinking I wish we had more, but just in terms of it being difficult to schedule in with, with such a long MLB regular season and, and the intensity you get because it's a little bit shorter, I think is, is kind of a win-win. Um, but I, I'm also curious what you thought about basically the entire world realizing how cool the splitter is. This has been something you've been talking about for years. <laughs> And basically every Japanese pitcher throwing a a splitter and and seemingly having a disgusting one. Uh, There was a lot of positive press for your splitter, Ben. It's a tough pitch to hit, especially if it's not a pitch you're accustomed to seeing a lot. Um, I mean, I think we're seeing more and more pitchers who come through the, you know, come through an MLB development system, whether they're from the USA or, or the Dominican Republic or Venezuela, Colombia, wherever, um, start to throw a splitter, whether it's in the minor leagues or, or learning that pitch in the majors, especially if they you know, don't have great feel for either a breaking ball or a changeup. Uh, they might throw really hard, but you need to learn a, a second pitch to get more swing and miss and to give hitters another look, keep them off balance. And it's, I mean, it's tough, especially when you can throw uh, a nasty one, like, you know, Sasaki or, uh, you know, so many of those pitchers on that Japanese staff can, and it just falls right off the table. I mean, whether you're a lefty or a righty, it's a big weapon. I think there's, you know, sometimes we have these ideas in our heads about, um, you know, what is true about baseball because we've just heard that it's always true, whether it's the, you know, the splitters, you know, more dangerous for your elbow or whatever other preconceived notions that we have because it's just been repeated over and over. And then, you know, we see... You know, whether it's in Japan or Cuba, where the the splitter is much more common and we see, hey, actually, this is (laughs) maybe what we historically have thought is not necessarily true. Maybe the conventional wisdom is not right. And maybe we need to question that. And I think it's a, a great weapon for pitchers who who are able to pick it up again if you can't throw a good splitter then you should not throw a splitter because it's just yeah. going to be an 87 mile an hour fastball that doesn't uh doesn't move <laughs> that's not gonna lead to good outcomes but for guys who are struggling especially to develop a quality secondary pitch uh why not experiment with it yeah i'm kind of curious to see how splitter usage will change over the next few years because just looking at the pitch usage information we have league-wide going back to 2002 it seems like it's been pretty consistent between 1.3 and 1.7 percent total pitch usage which is extremely small and i think that baseball teams these days if they see that something works they're going to push it as far as it goes until like they're going to increase the usage of a pitch 
as much as possible. You see it with sliders in general, and then specific variants of the slider are becoming more and more popular. Fastball usage has gone down with the slider usage going up. If, if it's a pitch that's effective, you would expect to see it go up because pitching coaches are going to teach players to miss bats. You want to get good results. And I think even if you look at last year's results on the, the splitter, Dylan White with us, who, who's doing a lot of fantasy content, showed that the I think it was the weighted on base average against the splitter was, was lower than any other pitch type. So I think there's no doubt that it's effective. I, I kind of wonder just if we maybe don't realize how difficult it is to throw, and I think in particular to throw for strikes consistently, because you could even see it in the USA-Japan game. There were a few innings where it, it seemed like the U.S. hitters knew the splitter was coming, and they were just sitting on it at times and letting it fall out of the zone. Um, so I think it's probably just a very difficult pitch to throw consistently and effectively for strikes. And maybe it can be easy to just understate how, how difficult that really is. But I do hope that we get more pitchers who, who can just throw it more consistently because it's such a fun pitch just to watch players throw yeah i think there's a there's got to be a sampling bias when you just look at the raw numbers against a pitch because like if if you don't like you don't see a lot of 45 splitters in in the big leagues because if you don't throw if you don't throw a good one you're just not going to throw it in a game so you're mostly just going to see really good splitters in the big leagues of the guys who throw them. Mm -hmm. And then the other part is kind of like what I was saying before is if it's a pitch that you're not used to seeing, which, you know, most players who, you know, grew up in the United States or, or, you know, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, and and came up through the system in, in the minor leagues and in the major leagues, you're just not seeing a lot of those pitches. So your eyes are just not accustomed to the way that the, the ball behaves yeah i wonder if it will just kind of stay a a, not a gimmick pitch but just a rare pitch uh or if it will maybe go the way of the cutter it really felt like the cutter was in a similar overall league-wide usage in the early 2000s and now that's a pitch we're seeing about six percent of the time it feels like that is maybe the easier pitch to add if you don't have great field for spin and you just need something else that has a little bit of movement to to keep a batter off your fastball or if you just need another pitch that maybe you can more effectively use in the zone when you're down in counts um when you don't want to just give up uh, a fastball count to a good hitter who's sitting on that if we could even get that pitch usage up to like 6%, I think that would be really cool just to see. I love just diversity of pitch arsenals overall, different ways of, of pitches attacking, different ways of throwing. Uh, it's more fun when, when the game is more varied, and I, I do think we're heading in that direction in, in a lot of different ways, and hopefully we can see that on the offensive side as there's, well this year in baseball. There's probably some aspect of career risk, too, if you don't have buy-in from the very top, as in from your general manager or team president or whoever's you know your chief uh, you know baseball decision maker in the organization because if you're a pitching coach or a pitching coordinator in the minor leagues and you're say hey I want to teach this guy a splitter and then he gets hurt right like if you're doing something that's going against the grain or going against conventional wisdom and then there's an injury that happens the and somebody 
might above you might say, Hey, why, why are you doing that? Instead of just having him throw a changeup, maybe that's why he got hurt. So there's probably some aspect of career risk to it as well. Again, unless you have that organizational buy-in from the top. Yeah. I could see that being a case too, but I, but I would also think as well, there would be maybe the same logic going in the opposite direction for pitchers who knew they were kind of close to getting cut or the career ending. Like at that point, you should be willing to go against the conventional wisdom in a lot of ways if you're trying to just hang on to your career. So I wonder if that's something where players just saw how effective the pitch can be. And, and maybe if you kind of need to reinvent yourself at that stage in your career, wherever that is, if it's if it's you're getting older, the velocity's tapered off, um, you're coming back from injury and the stuff isn't the same, or if you just never maybe cleared some hurdle up the organizational ladder, if that's just maybe another potential weapon that, that you could use to jumpstart the career. Well, I thought that for a long time about it. A lot of guys who are just like, like you said, on that bubble of getting released, or maybe they have been released and not necessarily with a splitter, but at a certain point, I'd like to see more guys in that position start to drop down and change their arm angle, throw sidearm, go the submarine route. I mean, if you're already on that edge of like, hey, my professional career or my career with an affiliated team might be coming to a close or I've I've already been released, uh, why not? I mean, you can throw, you know, 97, 98 from over the top. If you were to change your arm angle uh you'd obviously become a pure reliever at that point but i don't know yeah pure reliever is better than not pitching in the any professional capacity anymore yeah it's just something that hey maybe this is something that could extend your career a little bit longer yeah it does seem like all of these all of these creative ways to change your career extend your career or just reimagine yourself it, it's all things that pitchers can do like there's only so many things you can do as a hitter it's not like you're going to just there's there's not a huge advantage you're going to get by vastly changing your hitting mechanics to the same level as you can as a pitcher. So just another example of how the pitchers are really adva- advantaged in our game and it's because they're the ones with the ball. It feels like every every sport whoever has the ball, you've got the advantage. The other side is trickier. I don't I don't know that there's I mean maybe you could see players in a different era who are just really fast just being more open to bunting for hits. We've seen a few players in, in the history of the league who have been solid at that. I don't I don't know that there's really a, a place for that sort of profile in today's game, though. It's a lot did harder you, to reinvent yourself as a hitter. Did you like that two-strike bunt that no. Japan pulled? I hated it, no. <laughs> I, I just don't know enough about their personnel to really have the... I also didn't realize that that player had, was dealing with like a, a finger injury at the time. And it was like, oh, why do you want him swinging if he has a a broken finger? And I was like, okay, why don't you just substitute him then? <laughs> like, we don't have anyone else that can swing the bat. We, we're having the guy with the broken finger bunt with two strikes. No, Ben, I, I'm not. I'm not ever a fan of bunting. You know this about me. And especially in that in that scenario, they were. What game was this? Mexico, that right? Was, They're down th- to their last six outs. I think that was the Mexico game. Yeah, yeah, I think it was the eighth inning. You're down to your last six outs, and you just give one away. I don't know. I'm not a fan. Hate it. It worked out for them, but no, d- didn't like the process at all. There, pinch gotta, up the man. Gotta like the outcome, though. <laughs> I guess so. We can we can make our decisions on that basis. That's that's what we're doing, I guess. I I am glad though that the USA, after they lost to Mexico in pool play, was able to 
turn things around and get to the finals and just seeing the way that it changed all of these storylines about them that were kind of forced upon them. We were seeing in real time the creation of narratives in in this Facebook club. And if if you're just watching on Twitter, you're really seeing all the writers like setting up scenarios and framing situations and just hoping that things fall into what makes a good story. So you're, you're seeing how people create the narratives that they want to happen. And it's just so, I mean, it's just what we do. We talked about this last time. We, we mm-hmm. like stories. We like to make stories. We like to make things fit in these nice little beginning, middle and end scenarios that make sense to us and help us just feel like we understand things better but it's a it's small season baseball and literally anything can happen so maybe don't don't have a take or a, a overlying narrative to take away from this yeah it was, fun, it was fun baseball well we yeah like you said we tend to write these flowery language stories about how these guys came together as a team for team usa and yeah. then they bonded and they played together as one and they learn the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> and, and of, you know, of course, to also after we know the outcome of, course. of the game. Like, do you think the Dominican team is not a close? Well, they didn't win because they were not, uh, they didn't have the clubhouse chemistry. They, they didn't want to play with each other. They weren't trying no. as hard as the other team. That's why they didn't win. They're not a tight knit group. They don't play with energy and passion exactly. to, um, in the Dominican nope. team. I mean, we, like, we, we just don't hear about the stories of how a team can together and played selflessly you know and all of the other cliches that you know we as writers tend to use and players and managers say after they win we just don't hear that about the teams that lost mm-hmm. even though the same is probably true on the other side of course but if, it is yeah <laughs> yeah if, if you wrote that though you like totally mess with people's brains and and look like baseball is a team sport but it's also very individualized it's not basketball 100 you know it's not football where you it's need your least it's the least the sport the team sport that's least reliant on like chemistry between players you could get it's a bunch of individualized mm-hmm. matchups both really on offense and defense like they're it's, it's like pitcher and catcher you could argue and then everything else it's a bunch of individual actions and everyone just kind of needs to do their own job yeah it's you know tr- it's it's still a team game. You can't have one or two dominant superstars and win. Absolutely. I mean, the yeah. WBC I and to make it seem like oh, individuals have more impact. I, th- I think it's the opposite. Just because it's harder for one player to have right like, a larger share of the the outcome of the game. So everyone kind of needs to do well. But yeah, in terms of like the synergy between players on a field probably really overstated (laughs) yeah well i think also (laughs) the wbc and the recent history of the angels is a good (laughs) uh exactly good example of (laughs) someone someone (laughs) tweeted uh when everyone was like anticipating the the otani trout trout matchup someone tweeted winner gets to leave the angels (laughs) ouch (laughs) and i thought that was really funny but also i mean it, it 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 kind of highlights how unfortunate it has been that we haven't seen trout and otani in these situations because we see what just massive stars they are for the game how how they get people excited about baseball and how you can just like you just want your best stars in these environments and it is a lot trickier in baseball for a star to carry their team 
to that scenario. You, you really have to have a well-built team all around you. Um, some people are going to hold Trout's lack of postseason against him when it comes time to just examine his career, and I, I really don't think there's any merit to doing that. It's, Trout's not the guy that's trying to put together the team. There's only so much he can do. Um, I guess maybe you could add extra points to, to players who did get a chance to play in the playoffs and, and lived up to those moments because that's really what, what it's all about. But you really have very little individual say in like where your team's getting to at the end of the day. Yeah, I don't know how much more Trout can do than be a 9-10 win player <laughs> almost annually throughout yeah. his career. Well, I, that's kind of interesting, and I'll use this basically to just plug the, our top um, – so on the on the site we released a MLB top 100. We're used to ranking top 100 players um, in, in terms of prospects, but for the magazine, I think it was Matt, Kyle, and JJ were the people behind this list. Ben, you can correct me if I'm wrong there, but we basically used the 2080 scale, graded out all the players in uh, Major League Baseball as part of our um, season preview, um, just to kind of show where players rank in terms of grades. Who who do you think are your top two, and is there anyone outside of Otani and Trout? And I guess what order would you put them? Because JJ mentioned this, everyone's been mentioning this, but it it seems pretty safe to say that Otani is the best player in the world right now. Do you have a different take? And I guess who are your top several players in baseball right now? I think yeah, I think Otani Trout would be my one two in that order. Um... No Judge, because on on the BA list, Judge is two, and I I was with you. I thought. Trout. I mean, it's easy to look back at Judge's season a year ago and want to flip. And I guess Trout has been injured more, and being on the field is certainly part of it. But I'm with you. I think it's pretty clear Otani Trout one too. Yeah, I mean, just as far as the raw talent, not just raw talent, but the just just the incredible amount of things that Otani is able to do on the field. And, and raw talent was not the the right word, but the the, the just how many tools he has and his ability to apply them on the baseball field in so many different ways that add value is like it seems made up like yeah <laughs> just I mean, he's really the video game player that you create and only the show when you want to do a two-way player and just max out all the attributes it's, it's literally what he is yeah i mean he could something could happen to him tomorrow where it's, he could never pitch again and he would still be one of the very best players in baseball. And he also happens to be one of the best pitchers in baseball. And he's younger, like you said, you know, he's younger than Trout. Um, just more, you know, going to be more value probably the rest of his career, I would say, relative to to Judge or Trout. But I also think Trout is going to age extremely well too so <laughs> i think his the second half of his career is going to be still very very good yeah i hope so it's crazy to think that otani is just going into his age 28 season right now like theoretically we're, we're just witnessing his prime currently that that seems crazy to think about but it's the case yeah the i mean the other thing that you know about the wbc is just something that I think that either we in the baseball media or the general baseball industry at large makes a mistake on in terms of just something we get wrong is that early in the WBC, we had 
you know, I think we heard a lot of storylines again about how the players on Team USA either didn't care or was like they didn't want to be there or they just didn't have like passion or bad body language. Like they just didn't have the same fiery intensity of, of some of the other countries. And that's why they had lost, or at least that game to, to Mexico, um, you know, and then of course, you know, they win their pool. They beat Venezuela. They go to the championship game and well, come within. They were second in the pool, weren't they? Well, all right. Sorry, they 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 advance. Yeah, they advance. Yeah, yeah, they advance. It doesn't. Yeah, whether you win. Either way, yeah, you yeah. Know, you advance from your pool. So, and then of course, after they win, you know, you have to like, you know, the stories get twisted around where people, you know, it's just more comfortable in in your brain to say well they started to show more energy and they started to play together as a team and that's why they won but you know look on the issue of playing with passion or what looks like outward passion or high energy i would say one that just every player is different some guys don't have rah-rah personalities and they're still tremendous players i think just in player evaluation uh more broadly i see people make mistakes where they say i don't like this player because he's a low energy guy he looks like he doesn't give a lot of effort you know he's a low motor guy i don't like his body language when in fact what you're seeing is a player who is just calm collected uh, is able to control his emotions and control his focus. Um, but then the second part, or go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think that point you just made is a great one because especially in baseball, it, it, it's such a game of failure and such a long season. And people constantly talk about like players being able to deal with that. You need to have the right mental... I don't know if it mental energy or just mindset to handle that failure and to just keep plugging along. Like you'll, you'll see people reference it the opposite way where you almost, if you are picking one personality type, you, you might could easily make the argument that you'd prefer this like calm, steady, not overly emotional player. Um, so it's weird when, when players like that do get criticized, but, but I think you're making a good point here. So I'll just let you continue. Yeah. I, I just think, each player is different. And then in the games themselves, where we're talking about the relationship between high energy teams and winning games in the WBC, I think if anything, you're probably getting the causality backwards because the team that's winning is going to be more fired up and they're fired up and they're excited because they're winning. They're not winning necessarily because they're fired up. I mean, if you're the USA and you're losing, what was it? Seven, one in like the third or the fourth inning against Mexico Mm -hmm. is Mike Trout supposed to be out there like pumping his fist and screaming. (laughs) I mean, of course not. It just, you know, I don't think Japan it didn't seem like they had all that much outward energy for the semifinal game against Mexico when they're losing three nothing in you know fourth, fifth, sixth inning. But that changes once they start clawing back the lead 
but our our brains start to tell ourselves that you know oh this team won because of the the energy they played with but you know that's just more yeah and then i think of course you get the survivor buyers survivorship bias yeah. uh the interviews with the managers after the game from the winning team where they talk about how they came together yeah and uh, all the interviews post game are honestly like you don't there's not a whole lot said that is really revealing for these interviews like even otani's interview afterwards like the interview is kind of boring like he's just trying to say the right things there in that interview he wasn't saying anything crazy the pregame speech we got to hear about was way cooler than the postgame interview where he's just being this respectful like good winner yeah i mean it's all it's all again like i said on the last episode it's all a, a very understandably human response from our brains just the way that they're wired to tell ourselves these stories about uh you know just to explain the way uh the world works and explain what we just saw and it's very comforting to think that way but i think we often get the causality backwards and are whether it's for analyzing a specific game or more broadly looking at player evaluation of a, a specific player uh, i think we can take away the wrong thing from looking at players who we consider to be low energy or low motor guys when in reality like they're they're just very under control and yeah. calm players there's a player in this year's draft class who's definitely going to get some criticism for these exact reasons i think and he probably already has from the scouting industry to various degrees um and that's jacob gonzalez a shortstop for mississippi he is he is very much not an emotional player on the field he always looks kind of dead face his, his teammates even joke about him just not showing a ton of emotion and that's just the player who he is i think that's just his personality um i don't think like to your point i don't think that means he wants to win any less than anyone else he's just wired differently and that's that's just the, the person that he is just calm collected quiet kind of introspective guy i don't i don't know why you would necessarily use that as some sort of pejorative against him and the other player that i remember we talked a lot about just makeup and personality and how they carried himself um that i covered that that really stands out to me is jared kelnick i remember back when he was in high school there were questions about his intensity he's just like a very intense kid who got very frustrated with himself when he got out some scouts didn't love the way that he reacted to strikeouts or just failure because he's very intense on himself and i think he was also a kid who's just super intense with how he worked just intensity always seemed to be the phrase and and there would be some scouts who would talk about that in a very positive way because they thought it was it was energy that he always directed at himself and used it to make himself better and then there were other scouts who were just like yeah why would you want to be this guy's teammate like i could see that being problematic in the future and it is it is really maybe just worth recognizing that there are tons of different personalities and it's not like there's any one that that's going to allow you to have success or not have success. It's just, we're all kind of wired a little bit differently. And so how we react to different situations is, is going to be different, but that uh, was, that was a public criticism of Bryce Harper when he was an amateur of (laughs) the way he, he acted outwardly. I don't think it was fair to Harper at the time to, you know, have some of those things said about him. Um, and it so the certainly hasn't hurt him too emotional. Was that the, 
critique at the time. And there's this when he like early on because he very quickly became a polarizing player in the big leagues. I wasn't around when he was like doing his thing in high school and at junior college. At that point, was the critique that he was too emotional? What was the specific critique? It was, I mean, if you put in like Bryce Harper draft makeup, I'm sure some things would uh, pop up. But yeah, I mean, you had, um, you know, unnamed sources, scouts who were saying how they just like didn't like him as a person. Um, Certain things just about, yeah, his personality on the field. Uh, You know, he had all the eye black and all this you know stuff like that and there were there were like some on field stuff that rubbed some people the wrong way and just the yeah uh the way that he played and it's like i don't know guy's gonna be in the hall of fame (laughs) i think it's i think it's working out all right it's funny how the eye black now will get associated with harper and i'll even hear some people talk about players who are wearing a lot of eye black and like kind of like a just like a generally negative way. They're like, oh, yeah, he's got all this eye black on. Like, it's almost like old man, like yelling at cloud um, kind of moments when you hear about players with the eye black. That's funny. And also, oh, what was I going to say about this? I had another point that I wanted to make here. Oh, yeah, I, I, I think that it's just weird how much we police how players react and act on the field in baseball. Like, you, you got to show enough emotion that it makes it seem like you're you care and that you want to win, but don't touch, don't, don't show too much emotion because you can't show anyone else up on the field. Like it's this very delicate balance that you have to have to be playing baseball in the right way. And I really wish we could get past that because I think you should be able to play baseball however you want really and celebrate however you want. If you're very emotional, that that's fine. It's fun to watch. And if you're, I mean, when Randy Rosarina made his catch and just stood there, that was that was just as cool as if he had had some massive celebration. And he certainly has done those as well. And I just, just it's just fun to watch different players. Uh, I really wish we could maybe not police like how people carry themselves so much in baseball. Yeah, or if you, you know, if you have the personality more of a Jacob Gonzalez, like you were talking about. I mean, it made me think of JD Drew back in the day when people. I mean, even he, when he was like a really productive major league player, you had fans of his own team that didn't like him. It's like, this guy's like a consistent high on base threat. Like he's like a really good player, but just the way, it's, you know, whether it's your on field mannerisms or, you know, your, your perceived personality uh, can just rub some people the wrong way but it doesn't actually affect the the value that you bring to a team i mean zach granke had this as well i feel like because he was just kind of a different guy that rubbed baseball people the wrong way but now because he's had a hall of fame career people almost look at him like like they're charmed by his quirks now it definitely gets rewritten after the fact yeah (laughs) (laughs) how it uh how it happens i like your point too about the the interviews with the players after the game. Cause one of the, they're so bad. Well, one of the weird ones was like, like I felt like some of the media defensiveness of the WBC went a little over the top and I love the WBC, but one of the stranger talking points went from starting to be like, you know, like listen to the players and how important it is to them, which is fair 
but then you would have like the reporters on the field asking players at the WBC and doing it post game right after they won a tournament game in the WBC. Like, like what, what's more important to you? Like the WBC or an MLB playoff game? And like, yeah, if the player says the WBC is bigger, of course they're going to share that, share that answer and be like, see, the WBC matters more than the playoffs. And it's like, all right, maybe there's a sampling bias at play yeah, here. You're, when you're, you're asking the people who decided <laughs> to play in the WBC if it was important to them. Like, clearly it is. Clearly they're not going to say no. And, a, important. and asking and asking them in the heat of the emotional moment what matters more like i don't know go go ask mike trout on the field after he wins a world series which one he cares more about or go ask francisco Lindor after you don't have to worry about that trout one he's not winning a world series well, all right after francisco Lindor it's a, a walk-off to send the mets to the world series you know what i mean like and i again i love the wbc i'm not questioning the passion the players have for it but it's just like this very strange media tactic of <laughs> trying to ask this very loaded mm-hmm. question in a very emotional uh, moment. For sure. I think the the one that maybe gets me the most are, like, I don't really understand why we feel such a need to interview managers in the middle of the game. I feel like they very rarely add to the broadcast, and most of the time I'm just like, these guys are probably so annoyed they're having to sit here, watch the game, make sure they're not making any decisions or, or don't need to make any decisions uh, to impact the game and also like don't say anything that's going to make you seem stupid like I, I hate those interviews i wish we'd do away with them i've never heard one and be like you know that was a really insightful comment that we just got that that changes how i'm thinking about this game right now it's mostly like oh is this guy funny or is he just really deadpan like what is this the, the manager like in this moment in this interview and we should do away with them i, I hate them i think occasionally you can get some interesting information from it if a if a pitcher was really struggling uh, or there was an injury the injury is maybe the only one where you can just say okay what's the status and if you yeah. get the answer to that you're just getting a fact but like most of the time it's like how are you guys going to handle this pitcher and it's it's like they're the most generic answers we get ever it's like oh we just gotta you know go up there have a good approach look for a pitch to hit okay we hear this every single game i think they and they interviewed DeRosa while Otani was batting and I'm sure it's prearranged where it's like, all right, we're going to interview this manager in this this inning. And it just happened. Cause I think by the, before the bat even ended, they were like, all right, we're going to cut this off uh, pretty soon. Cause nobody in the world wants to listen to Mark DeRosa talk over a split screen while Otani is hitting. So we don't even need the video. Like, what are you getting from the video? Just put, just overlay the audio like you do with the broadcast. Yeah. But we're kind of getting down a rabbit hole and just criticizing how, how the games are covered at this point. And I don't want to be too negative, but I just think that it, it doesn't really add too much for me. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, look, by the way, the, the best way to enjoy the World Baseball Classic is not to say like, hey, these are small samples that we shouldn't draw sweeping conclusions from the game. The The best way is either just to be there live screaming at the ballpark or sitting at home pounding beers and just enjoying yeah. the games. What's your what's your go-to beer of choice for watching the WBC, Ben? I was I was hoping the uh, Dominican Republic was going to advance a little further. I could have some presidentes, but oh, they no they disappointed me. That. Oh, it 
It hits different in the Dominican Republic too when yeah. you're <laughs> after a long day at the fields and come back to the hotel and uh you know with a few baseball folks drinking some some presidentes is uh, nice. always a good feeling. Nice. Well, uh that's all the WBC thoughts I had, I think. Um yeah, any any other thoughts or last comments cuz I I can't imagine we'll revisit it until the next one is approaching. So I'll, I'll just give you one final moment if you have any any last thoughts. For me, I just thought it was a blast. Most fun I've had watching the event. Uh, and hopefully the playoffs for Major League Baseball lives up to it because I, I really think it was a lot of high-quality baseball and a lot of really close games, and, and that obviously helps make the product better. So uh, 80 grade for me. Yeah, I feel like I'm coming down from a really, really good high. <laughs> so it's a little depressing right now. But does it make you more fired up for – the regular season than you would be at this time or is it about the same actually i think if this hadn't happened i would be more i would be anticipating the regular season more than otherwise because i I feel like i've been satiated a little bit um and and it was like a a ton of fun and i don't feel like i've missed baseball and the fact that it was like games that really mattered so so if the if the wbc wasn't here i would probably be way more excited for opening day than i currently am um so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's a bad thing necessarily or it's just like a function of actually being able to watch like a cool tournament of baseball. Like I'm not not looking forward to opening day, but I also probably have a different um, mindset around opening day than most people because my opening day it, every year now feels like when the college season starts. And so I've kind of been watching baseball for a while now. Um I guess what I most look forward to for the regular season and opening day in general is just getting back into that that classic rhythm that you get from an MLB regular season where just something is constantly going on and it's never something that you need you feel like you need to like be tuned into like for every second but it's just that that nice background rhythm that that baseball gives you that I, I really don't think other sports give you that's nice to have um but I, I don't think that I'm anticipating the opening day more. I, th- I think I'm probably anticipating it less because the WBC was so good. How about you? I don't think that's MLB's goal. <laughs> well, I think that <laughs> for, for people like me, like I'm going to watch it anyways. I could see this maybe capturing the imaginations of, of people who maybe weren't inclined to watch opening day who are now excited about it and are going to watch it. Like I'm going to watch it either way, you know? It's just I think the like – the anticipation that I have personally is less, but I, I I don't know that for, for casual fans or maybe for people who weren't fans at all, I think the WBC is still a huge success, right? Yeah. I'd be curious if you're, yeah, if you're listening, let us know what you think. If the WBC has made you more excited for the season uh, or less excited like Carlos is or, or indifferent. It's it's just mostly a (laughs) framing issue for me. (laughs) Well, how about you? Are you more amped up to see, regular season games now with trout and otani on the same team playing for a mediocre angels team like like what does i don't just the wbc doesn't make me like more excited for opening day i think we're just not a representative sample of like that's 100 of people who are watching especially if especially if you're invested in the amateur game like we are where it's like yeah i am ready for that background beat of the regular season yeah that's just it's just nice when games are happening and you can kind of look through boxes 
watch highlights just have it have it being like ongoing is nice but it almost feels like the wbc in, in some ways takes away from like the hype that is opening day typically for me this year mm. but yeah I, i'm fine with that i think it's a it's a worthy trade-off for me all right i feel like it gets me a little bit more excited than a typical spring training would though like spring, spring training, training it feels like for me any year though i would say yeah it's because again, I, I kind of have to separate myself from this conversation maybe and just opt out entirely because every year when spring training is going on, I'm watching like actual college games that matter and like stuff is moving on the draft side and it feels like I'm in season. And then people who don't care about amateur baseball or college baseball are just like constantly like waiting for those games to start. And for me, I'm like, oh, they're already here. Um, so yeah, let me just opt out of this one. All right. Should we talk about the spring training guys next then? It's a perfect yeah, segue. Of... Yeah, I'll just go. I'll, I'll, I'll take a break. I'll go get something to snack on. And you can monologue about spring training. What on earth about spring training has interest you lately? I think, I mean, the players, like seeing who's performing, seeing how the rosters are going to get shaken up. That, that's interesting. There are a couple interesting moves that have been made over the last week or so that have been fun to kind of watch from the outside looking in. But um yeah, I guess hearing hearing from Josh and Kyle and Jeff and all the people who are going to spring training for us and and hearing about who's looking really good, who's added a new pitch, who the scouts are really excited about, that all that is really fun. Um, but that's fun regardless of, of when it's happening for me. Yeah. I mean we've and we've talked about a bunch of guys who a bunch of prospects who are at spring training and have kind of stood out in previous episodes. One guy we didn't talk about was Christian Encarnacion Strand. Um, he is, he was having a great spring training, um, a lot of power reds, reds, corner infield prospect, um, well above average raw power, uh, outstanding arm strength. Uh, I don't know if uh, there certainly seems to be a lot of excitement around him right now from from that fan base based on what he's been doing in spring training and you know what he did last year too he reached double a uh he performed really well hit um i think it was like 32 home runs last year Um, line really quickly but yeah i mean it's he's coming off a very impressive season he came over um you know, in that trade from, from the twins, I, I still, I think he's a good prospect, but I, I'm still skeptical on him just because I think it's definitely power over hit mm-hmm. with him. I think there's chase tendencies in there that get him into trouble. Now, when he squares it up, when he gets it right on the sweet spot, it's like we said, plus plus raw power. Uh, it's a chance to be a thirty home run guy mm-hmm. in the big leagues. But I think the the approach and the pure bat to ball skills are going to get him into some trouble. Um, if there was, uh, you know, a more a more discerning eye or more selective approach at the plate that would offset some of the strikeouts. I'd feel more comfortable being aggressive with him, mm-hmm. but I think that's that's an area that still leaves him as a, a higher risk guy to me despite the obvious power and mm-hmm. you know and and the spring training performance that we've seen so far. 
Yes, Strand is a fascinating one because I feel like he's a guy who has consistently put up great numbers and I think I've always just been waiting for him to stop hitting at this sort of level and it, it really hasn't happened yet. He was a guy who hit just crazy numbers in junior college. He played at Yavapai Junior College in Arizona in 2019. Then he transferred to Oklahoma State, quickly became like the best hitter on that team. Um, he was among the top the conference and average and home runs. Um, like you said, he's got great power. Last year, across three different le- or three different teams, um, two levels, high A and double A, he hit overall 304, 368, 587. He did get 32 home runs, 31 doubles. Um, but the big question with him is just the approach and the chase. It was close to a 40% chase rate last year in the minors. They're swing and miss as well. He swings a lot. I think he was over 50% of the time that he was swinging the bat. Um, and so it's it's just kind of a question of does that approach allow him to still get to his power when he's facing better pitching? Um, there are not a ton of players with that sort of profile that are above average offensive profiles, and I would expect that's a just a profile that you get more concerned about as they age too once the bat speed isn't quite as electric um, feels like you could really kind of fall off a cliff offensively. Has there been any talk about the approach changing during the spring? I, I'm not even sure if that's something that you can really take a huge, um, like you could really learn a ton just because the pitchers are working on so many different things. Like I'm just not sure how much you can learn about a changed approach in the spring. Um, but maybe you feel differently about that, Ben. No, I mean, we literally have a, or had a player in spring training who went up to the plate not swinging the bat ever yeah, by design. So it's crazy that that Miguel Vargas. I mean, yeah. Got on base, what, half the time? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's just a lot of things, especially early on in spring training that, I mean, mechanically you could see if a player has changed something about his swing uh, or if, you know, a guy is 30 pounds heavier or if a guy who was topping out at 94 before is coming in, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's throwing 97, 98 now. Like, all right, now we have a tangible difference we can point to, but uh, plate discipline, selectivity. I would just want a much larger sample and I would want it against like games that mattered to know because like, like a, I do like a like, wbc game yeah exactly exactly right. yeah that'd be great um so yeah he he seems like a risky one to me but again he, he's kind of kept hitting and if he keeps performing we'll see what happens I, I wouldn't bet on it but he's a fun one to watch and see uh, and i do think approach like i think it's easier to change an approach than it is to like overhaul a swing maybe maybe that's a take but it seems like that could be something that would be easier to change right uh, sometimes sometimes i mean sometimes it's just your your vision or your brain and the way your yeah. brain processes that's information yeah. if it's not necessarily an approach issue but just like a he can't recognize pitches issue so he constantly has to be attacking and yeah that's a good point yeah so it could be but again it's if we're a little bit wrong <laughs> he could, you know, he could definitely still develop into an impact player because mm-hmm. there's no question about the power that he has. Yeah, he's got huge tools. The raw power is massive. The arm strength is pretty massive as well. I don't, it'd probably be surprising if he wound up being an everyday third baseman in this system with this organization, considering 
all of the shortstops and third basemen they have who are who are better defenders. So it puts even more pressure on the bat. But he's he's been fun to watch. I didn't get to see him a ton this spring. And maybe he's just a guy who will always be kind of a streaky hitter. Uh, even if he doesn't make adjustments, maybe he's just one of those guys who will get hot for a few weeks and you kind of have to live with the cold spells. And um, despite that, over the length of the season, maybe you can still get a productive bat and a, uh, a player who's able to supply a little bit of power, even if he's not like a classic middle of the middle of the lineup guy. Yeah. Another guy I feel like, Ricky Tiedemann, he's he's missed some time, I think, with the you know little shoulder thing. Um, so he's still coming back right now, but it feels like there's been a lot of attention on him because it seems like he could make an impact for the Blue Jays in their rotation potentially this year. Um, he is still 20 years old. I think he only had four starts last year in Double A. They were all, <laughs> I mean, very impressive still. Um, but he, man, he has absolutely turned himself into one of the premier pitching prospects in baseball. He's not in that. Jeez, oh, uh, do we do we include Andrew Painter <laughs> in this group right now or not? But yeah. uh, no, probably he, not. Right? He's got to fall back some now. Certainly behind Yuri Perez and Grayson Rodriguez. But I mean, R- Ricky Tiedemann is—I I think he's a chance to be like a front ends, you know, number two type starter uh, if everything clicks for him it just seems like ever since the blue jays drafted him it's just been arrow up 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 like the stuff keeps getting better a fastball gets better he's always had a really good change up the slider is getting better so he has he has three pitches that you know have a chance to grade out anywhere from 60 to 70 and he throws a lot of strikes he misses a lot of bats um very little time in the upper levels so far but i i actually think he's somebody who can make an impact in the blue jays rotation this year i don't think he's gonna be there at you know in their you know on their opening day roster but i think come the second half of the season he's somebody who who could come up and and pitch meaningful innings for them in their rotation? Yeah, Tiedemann is an interesting one too because I think he's a great example of how the JUCO route can really be beneficial for players. Absolutely. In the high in his high school class in 2020, he was a prospect um, who was known about, got a lot of draft interest, but I don't think teams were ready to match his signing demands at the time. He was originally committed to San Diego State. Uh, and then rather than, and this was 2020 draft, so shortened draft, five rounds, um, heard a lot of players in terms of jumping into pro, the pro game immediately. A lot fewer high school players were selected that year, um, and we're kind of seeing the benefits of that from a, a draft class strength um, point of view in 2023. But if he'd gone to San Diego State, he's still in college. He's going to be drafted this year, and now we're looking at a guy who flipped to junior college he went to golden west um junior college in california he really added a lot of strength and physicality and and that led to an increase in stuff over over just like a year basically raised his stock quite a bit was drafted in the third round signed for just over six hundred thousand dollars and now he is like you were just talking about basically about to impact the big league team and as a 19-year-old, got some experience in double-A. I think 
with the way the draft worked that year, we saw a lot of junior colleges benefit um, just because players needed somewhere to go. And so you saw a lot more talent reach the junior college level. But I really think that even moving forward, now that we're back to a more standard draft size, uh, even if we're, we're still not back at 40 rounds, for a lot of players who maybe don't want to go to school for three years and and thought they were kind of close but needed a little bit of refinement or needed to fill out a little bit physically or had a few things they needed to work on based on some feedback from the industry or from their coaches. Like the JUCO route is a very – it gives you a lot of options. Um, there are a lot of junior colleges that do a great job developing players as well. Um, and being able to just immediately be draft eligible a year later, reassess your – you're kind of standing in the industry, weigh your options once again, and then either you could go back to junior college again, uh, or you could bounce to a, a four-year school. Like, I think it is a, a great pathway for a lot of players, and maybe you don't grow up really like envisioning yourself playing at junior college competition. Everyone wants to be in Power Five and, and be at these SEC schools that, that have these massive crowds and cool environments. But um, just from a purely developmental perspective. It's a great option. You can go. You can get a lot of playing time. You can get a lot of reps. Um, and the added flexibility for your your future career decisions seems like just nothing but positive. So, great yeah, of that. you don't see a lot of freshmen in high school posting on their Instagram about how they're blessed to commit to a junior college. That's <laughs> probably not the goal. But you're right. It's yeah. And I don't necessarily think that it's like you don't need to commit to a junior college as a freshman. That that seems like it could be a choice you make closer to your your senior year graduating high school but um there's a lot of benefits to it yeah no i just mean to your point it's not like yeah it's not the goal that probably a lot of players set out for themselves or if they even know much about it Mm -hmm. but i think especially for pitchers it can be extremely valuable now for hitters you might have to transfer to to a division one program and prove yourself more there in a lot of cases, but especially for pitchers where it's easier to evaluate, I think, a pitcher independent of the competition he's facing, whereas a hitter, you probably want to see him face you know, better quality stuff yeah. uh, to make a more complete evaluation of him. But for a pitcher, I mean, you could have me or you stand on the box and you can still know how hard so, the pitcher's throwing, all the all the metrics, all the all the data that comes from the pitches, or just watching him visually, the way his slider moves, the action on his changeup, his delivery, his arm action, uh, to a certain extent, command and and control, as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have a better sense of it in you know how the stuff plays against SEC hitters, but uh, than you do against JUCO guys. But we certainly see a lot of pitchers, in particular. Um, who can who can benefit from going the the JUCO route? Yeah, absolutely, and, e- and even for some of those hitters, I think the the colleges at this point, with with how much the transfer portal is a factor and and what you need to be doing for your incoming classes, like if you think about it from a college's point of view, would you rather kind of look towards the high school ranks for a hitter that you need to impact your team now? I think I think there could be a lot of comfort in getting players who have performed at the junior college level. We see that. And plenty of like every year we see junior college players make the transition to four-year schools and make an immediate impact. And if you're a player and you aspire to to play in Power Five conferences, is it more beneficial for you to go to one of these schools right away and and sit on the bench for a couple of years, or would it be better to 
go to a smaller school to a junior college and play consistently um, get those reps that you need on the field and then you still have the option to to play later so your, your total playing time for a power five school might be the exact same um, but your, your total reps and and the development that you get on the field in real games could be significantly improved just by um, being open to the juco approach so i think it's i think it's good yeah absolutely if you're gonna sit on the bench at your dream school in a d1 program for two years are you yeah. gonna get better that way or are you gonna get better actually for sure playing in games yeah if that's the goal is to keep playing i mean and, and i should also say too that like obviously we're focused on pro prospects but for for plenty of players going to your dream school and sitting on the bench is a great outcome maybe you're not going to play baseball after college you're you're on the team you're going to get a degree you're going to have a good time in college that's fine too but for we're, we're talking about players who are, who are trying to maximize their potential there's there's a lot to be found at the at that junior college level and that juco route so and, and financially too i mean these guys are not getting full rides for it's <laughs> at, at uh, the d1 schools it's there was some i don't know if this has been implemented but there was some talk about how like they're going to increase the size of college rosters now, but nothing will happen with the uh, the amount of scholarships. And I just don't understand how that's beneficial for anyone. College rosters are probably already too big. What? How is at making a college baseball roster and keeping the scholarship limits? You're basically stretching the same amount of money over more players now, uh, and then you have even more barriers to playing time for a lot of players. So I just think that's kind of weird how that's happened, but it's a bit. Yeah. I would love to see touch on more scholarship money. Um, but, uh, the other guy or one other arm in spring training <laughs> who's getting a lot of attention is, uh, oh, man. Ben Joyce, Ben Joyce, who is getting a lot of attention for obvious reasons. Cause he throws about 300 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's, I mean, he's an interesting guy because, I mean, he does throw, what is it, 103, 104, yeah, he 105. Had in college, and it was pretty consistently over 100, but 104, I think, was the, the tops that he's had so far. Yeah, pure relief prospect. With it. We, we cited, re- repeatedly touched 104, 105. So maybe, I think he had one that was like 104 point something. Um, and the way most guns work, if it's, if it's over 0.5, it'll round up. So Yeah, I mean, he's sitting in the 100s, right? <laughs> it's He's a pure reliever Not with the enough. Angels' third-round pick last year out of Tennessee. And it's, it's, a, it's a high-octane fastball, obviously, right? Um, but it's not like he was even Tennessee's closer last year. It wasn't like he was out there pitching in the biggest moments yeah. for them. Um, he but he, believer. yeah, he went, you know, he, the Angels assigned him to double A right out of the gate last year, and he pitched well in double A. Yeah, I mean, 13 innings um, with Rocket City, 2.08 ERA. He struck out 20, walked four. So it's like 13.8 K per nine, 2.8 walk per nine. Um, significantly better control numbers than I was expecting for him to post, especially going straight to double A. Yeah. Is he, I mean, I don't know. What do you make of him Yeah. overall? Is he like a potential elite well, closer? No, no. I, I mean, no. I've kind of acknowledged that with this one, I'm probably always going to be the low man. And if I'm wrong, I am just wrong. But 
I mean, JJ has written a lot about this, just the, the track record of college relievers and the, the usage patterns that most college relievers have just don't track very well to the usage patterns that you need to be able to throw in at the major league level. And even in, in double A, I'm pulling up his game logs right now, but he just has not been used like he's going to be used at the major league level. So um, let's see, four games or four days in between starts, five days in between, or not starts. My math is terrible here, by the way. Six days in between outings, five days in between outings, four days in between outings, three days in between outings. I don't think he's yet to pitch back-to-back days in his career. Like it, going back to high school, I think he never pitched on back-to-back days in college, I don't believe. I'm not sure if he's done that in the spring, but it'd be shocking if that, that was actually the case. So there are usage questions that I would have. There are control questions, just because like you had mentioned, I mean, there was a reason that Ben Joyce was not used as a, a high leverage reliever with that Tennessee team. He was used kind of as a, a middle reliever. Um, and I think that I'm also just concerned about him throwing that hard. Um, with without the control I, I think he's got great stuff and obviously it's, it's great natural arm talent I just wonder about why he wasn't indifferent like we're hearing about Ben Joyce as a potential lockdown closer at the big league level and I just feel like there's no evidence that he's ever been that just because he throws that hard now maybe he figures it out he learns how to be a better pitcher um, you know the Angels do something great with his development and I'm just wrong on him. But I, I feel like at this point, I'm, I'm just going to be one of the lower people on him for all of the, the kind of red flags that I feel like there are in the profile. Again, like he did pitch better than I expected him to in double a. And I think he, he's got an arm that, that he can move quickly if he's just throwing stuff around the zone, but I'm probably going to be lower on, on this one than most people. Where are you at? Uh, probably somewhere in between, I think just because he hasn't had it all click for him yet. I mean, and it's not that he's even like struggling. It's not like he went out and posted a six ERA out of the bullpen in Tennessee. So it's not like he was getting blown up no, last he, year. He had or- 2.23 ERA, 32 innings, 53 strikeouts and 14 walks. Um, but I just think the control is going to be much worse than people are expecting because in college, he, he got a ton of swings out of the zone for people who just did not know what to do with that stuff. And while the velocity is, is still outlier velocity, even at the major league level, I just think if he's not throwing a secondary for strikes consistently, I'm not sure how effective that is going to be. I, I think there's still – that's something that could still – not that will improve, but has a chance to still improve. And I could see him having a career – I mean, maybe it's lazy, but like, oh, you know, along the lines of like Jordan Hicks. I mean, there's not that many guys that throw 104, 105 miles an hour, but somebody who could, you know, be a solid reliever for, you know, maybe not a long career, but but somebody who can come in and, you know, be a be an effective major league reliever where, no, it's it's not the ideal commands that you want and he's not gonna I wouldn't expect him to come in and be uh, a closer but I think I think there's still a a good outcome for Mm -hmm. you know for his career we can stick around for a little bit and be be an effective 
reliever with a, with a chance to pitch in some high leverage situations. Yeah, and I think also worth pointing out, like he did have Tommy John surgery prior to 2022, so maybe it's a case that as he gets further and further away from that surgery, the command kind of improves, the touch and feel gets a little bit better. But I think while saying that too, I also just have increased injury questions and concerns. Like having a TJ that young and throwing that hard that young just adds to kind of the risk profile for me that I think even if he was completely healthy is, is probably still a pretty high risk profile. Um, but yeah, we'll see. He's he's certainly a name that, that people want to get excited about and, and that makes a ton of sense. I mean, you, you just don't see guys who can throw that hard. Um, so we'll see, I guess. I'm, I'm open to being wrong on, on Ben Joyce. He won't be the first player that I'm wrong on and he certainly won't be the last. So we'll see what happens. I, I just think I would rather, if I had to like go on a limb, I'd probably just be on the lower side. <laughs> the the other guy I think is getting a good bit of attention is Jason Dominguez. Hopefully, I don't yeah. have to introduce Martian, him. The, the nickname. <laughs> it sounds like he's um, reacquired the nickname. I thought we we passed along the Martian nickname to to Ellie, but I guess he's played enough well enough that people are calling him the Martian again. He's yeah. I mean, look, he signed with the Yankees in in 2019. We obviously had written quite a bit about him prior to his signing. And I mean, it was at that time players would sign on July 2nd and then make their official pro debut the following year. So it was after the 2019 season, we ranked Jason Dominguez in our top 100. He was number 38 in all of baseball. And he was 16 before he had played a game in professional baseball. Um, I know a lot of people in in the public circle who uh, thought that was too aggressive, but I think you look historically at the track record of the number one international prospect in a given class in our rankings, uh, you know, setting aside Cuban players, uh, you know, Luis Robert, Yoan Moncada, those guys are coming over uh, at an older age. But, you know, you have Wander Franco, you have Vladimir Guerrero Jr., uh, Marco Luciano, uh, Eloy Jimenez. Now you also have Kevin Maiton and Adrian Rondon. Um, and if you don't know who those guys are, I understand. <laughs> but, but you know, I've I've been doing this for longer than I mean, literally anyone when it comes to writing about flex international and flex on them international amateur signings it's and it's not that i knew that jason dominguez would be a a great player and, and we still don't know that either but you have a sense of you know where players stack up relative to their predecessors uh the previous number one players in um an international class uh, and and you know that even with the miss rate, the the higher level of risk for a 16 or a, a 17 year old prospect relative to players who are older and closer to the major leagues, the magnitude of the impact when that player does hit can be so high and so outstanding, like we've seen with Franco or, or Vladdy Jr. And I actually got to like I got to see Dominguez play that year when he signed in 2019. Uh, it was before he had played a, an official pro game. I just went to the Yankees complex in the DR, which was kind of 
tricky just because that was the Yankees play their Dominican instructionally, but they probably have the shortest uh, window of games of any team. I think it was like two weeks of games at the time. Uh, and one of those weeks, it just rained and rained uh, and rained because that's what happens in the Dominican Republic in October. But uh, so I was able to see him play. Um, and I think our, you know, it, it's important to do that. Our, our ownership is great at uh, putting resources that we get from uh, BA subscribers back into the product so that we can see the players and share videos and bring back reports on these players. Uh, but then it was tough because in 2020, which should like this is very highly anticipated debut for him. We had the pandemic, so there was no minor league season, mm-hmm. not really getting any new information uh, on him. Uh, if I remember right, I think the Yankees didn't even do an instructional league that year. So um, you had like all of this great anticipation for him to play, and it just extended even longer. And I think people got uh, down on him for and maybe just like overreacted to a certain extent because he wasn't hitting 640 right away. <laughs> like, I think maybe some of the uh, expectations of what he was going to do right away were out of whack. Um, but if you just break him down right now as a player and project him out, this is still a, a really good prospect who who deserves to be a top 100 guy. He's a, a switch hitter, a really good athlete, a good swing from both sides of the plate, a lot of power, a lot of bat speed, a pretty good approach for his age, a good idea of what he's doing. And I think that got uh, or I tried to emphasize that when I was writing him up as an amateur is, yeah, this guy has really, really good tools. He can, you know, certainly at that time, really, really run uh, a lot of power, big time arm strength as well. But this is also, you know, just a, a baseball rat who has been around the game for his whole life, has a, a really high baseball IQ, is just a really smart player too. And it's it's easy to you know, be impressed with the, the tools and the athleticism and the the strength that he has. But he's also just a, a pretty sound baseball player, a pretty, pretty advanced instincts for the game. So, yeah. um, and it's good to see the, you know, the way that he's been, again, I don't, I don't take too much away from spring training, but it is nice just to, to see him showing it in front of uh, a lot of people in spring training right now. Yeah. You hit on a a few things that are interesting there that I wanted to just mention. Um, One is the fact that it really feels like Dominguez's like hype has just been a bit of a roller coaster ever since he signed. And the truth is probably somewhere in between the peaks and valleys of like what he's going to be as a player. I mean, we've talked about like our expectations for players and how that changes, how you view them quite a bit on this podcast. But he might be one of the better examples of a player in recent memory who just has had these wild swings of of hype and expectations and, and kind of fanfare surrounding him. Um, so it'll be nice once he's been around long enough to where that fades away a little bit and we can just kind of appreciate who he is. 
Uh, the other one is I, I think maybe it might happen less so in baseball because it's such a skill-driven sport, but I do wonder if there are players who have such loud physical tools um, that those tools can allow us to maybe underrate how good some of the, the underlying skills um, and instincts and approach to the game can really be. Like Because his power is so loud that maybe you're, you're a little bit less impressed than you should be with just the swing decisions and the, the overall approach to the game that he has. Um, because it's very easy to for those sorts of, of skills and attributes um, to shine in a player that, that just isn't super physically gifted compared to their peers. And I wonder if that um, is maybe something to be on the lookout when we're evaluating players or if you think that because like baseball almost necessitates a certain level of skill that it's it's maybe harder for it to be clouded by tools i think it's just hard to find players who have elite levels of both tools and skills um Mm -hmm. that's just what makes the special players so special sometimes yeah um Like, I mean, I think, you know, Max Clark is somebody who who has that. I mean, he I think he has special tools. High school, yeah, high school off Frailder from Indiana. Uh, he is, I think he's still number one, right, on our among high school players in, yeah, he is. in this we class. So released our draft update on Wednesday, uh, I believe it is. And, and Clark's still kind of sitting there in that number five spot that, that he's been in. He's right ahead of Walker Jenkins at number six. Yeah. We, we don't have to get, I wasn't planning on talking about Max Clark, but we did see some video of one of his first, um, I don't know if it was a game or a scrimmage, but he, yeah, he had a he scrimmage. Was, He's yeah, he was, wearing like seven layers of clothes in Indiana in March. Yeah. I was interested in the, the, the change because this is kind of what we talked about earlier you can notice mechanical changes a lot quicker and maybe that tells you more than um like you could potentially learn from an approach change and we could probably talk for a while about how like evaluating an approach for players like max clark and walker jenkins in high school could be tough because these guys just get pitched around so often but max clark does have a lower handset this spring than he did last summer and fall and i'd heard a lot about like how he's working on the swing over the off season. He's made a lot of positive changes to it. I think Max is, is very much aware of the, maybe not criticisms, but, but the fact that there are some question marks maybe about what sort of power hitter he can be. And it, it looks like the handset pre-pitch has been lowered a little bit so he can, he can elevate the ball a little bit more consistently or a little bit easier. But the swing still looks great. I'm curious to see like how those changes um, manifest itself over like once he's in in pro ball like what the swing is going to look like because i mean he's got all all of the skills in terms of bat ball skill approach like ability to use the opposite field and you've always been a guy who's higher on the power so i'm, I'm curious if this just allows him to maybe tap into that a little bit more consistently um although against the competition he's facing i'm really gonna uh, be conservative in in how i kind of think about that evaluation changing yeah, and you get to use the the metal bats, which will help sure. too. But yeah, I mean he's he's made some adjustments to his swing for a guy who I think already had a great swing. Like yeah. it was already it was already a great swing. And if you ask me, just who's the best pure hitter in the country? I think he's got to be at least, if not the guy, then at least in that conversation of upper echelon guys. Him, Kevin McGonigal, maybe put. Too pick for high school i think yeah maybe put walker jenkins in there i mean his power obviously stands out more than um mm-hmm. 
maybe anybody in the, in the high school class too. But, um, but yeah, I think he's just a guy who has great, a great combination of tools, athleticism that should jump out to everybody right away. And then the savvy and the feel for the game is, is tremendous and the bat to ball skills are there. And then you do see an adjustment that he's made with the, the setup in his swing and, uh, maybe that does potentially allow him to unlock more of that power that I think he does have in games. It's just the approach previously is more to kind of spread the ball around the field, put the ball in play, and, you know, he's a 70 runner, so he can take advantage of that, especially at uh, yeah. at this level. And what's cool about Max Clark is he just seems like, regardless of what he's trying to do, he does it all so easy. Yes. It feels like. And, and so just allowing those tools to play in kind of whatever – it's almost like he's he's toying with the game at this level, but the fact that he is able to make these sorts of adjustments and it, it still just looks so easy and so simple for him, I think is is really great for him moving forward. And just you probably see that a lot from these elite level prospects, just the ease that comes to the game. But um, you certainly see it with Max. Yeah, it's and then in that scrimmage too, I think PBR posted the video and said he hit that opposite field home run and then walked in his other three plate appearances and then Walker Jenkins and the, the, you know, the number two high school player in the country had a game this past week where I think he walked in all four of his plate appearances. So when you're going in and trying to, uh, as a scout for one of these clubs and you're trying to evaluate a player during the spring leading up to the draft uh that does make it tricky to judge a player when you know especially if if you're not the area scout where you're like you know seeing the guy consistently and it's you know especially if you're the area scout for a team that's picking in the top five five ten picks in the draft like you're probably going to be there a lot so you're going to probably see a lot of of Max Clark or a lot of Walker Jenkins, but uh, even beyond those guys, like, you know, if you're watching Colt Emerson or somebody like that in Ohio, you know, he's probably going to get pitched around a lot too this year. Like a lot of these elite high school hitters just will not see good pitches to hit, or they'll just get intentionally watched because the coach and other team is just trying to win a game for, for his club. So you understand it, but uh, man, is it frustrating to go in and you're there to see literally one player, uh, especially as like, you know, a national, you know, scouting director, national cross checker, you're flying all over the country every different day. And here you are and to see one of these guys and they get walked three times, four times in a game it definitely makes it, uh, frustrating, challenging to evaluate in, uh, <laughs> in those circumstances. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I've heard some funny stories about, exactly that happening a player being pitched around intentionally and and hearing about scouts like chiding the the opposing coach or or trying to bribe them with a beer after the game to just pitch to the guy it's always kind of funny in hindsight when you hear those stories but also like yeah it's got to be really frustrating as the evaluator when like this is the only reason that you're here is to see this player um that's why all these guys have to go see those batting practices before the game see the the workouts and kind of the in and out because every rep that you can get is super valuable in that environment where it's really not set up for you to get a good look compared to like a showcase environment or, or just the summer in general. Um, and it, it makes it really tricky. I feel like I'm kind of lucky. Most of the 
obviously don't go to targeted games for high school hitters, especially as often, nearly as often as all these scouts do. But the times that I have gone, I've been lucky to actually have a game where players do get pitched to. Like, for instance, with Walker Jenkins, every at-bat that he got in the game that I saw in person, he was getting pitched to. Now, he did walk in 1AB, but I don't think it was like an intentional, like, oh, we're, we're definitely not letting this guy swing the bat. Um, he made contact three times uh, in that game. But, yeah, I think it, it can be very tricky. It, it feels like the hardest thing to evaluate is high school hitters in the spring just because the competition can vary so much. You might not get a ton of actual in-game looks. And if you do, like, what are you taking away from that? So that's got to be the hard, one of the harder parts about of scouting on, on the amateur level is – and especially if you're one of these guys who's just kind of flying in, you're, you're trying to hit a bunch of your top targets on the list. You're maybe you're going to one high school game. Then you got to fly out to a pitcher who's throwing the next day. Then you're going somewhere else to see a college weekend matchup. So it's tricky. And yeah, I just hope that, that you can get a look where you're actually seeing some real at bats. I think it makes the summer and to whatever extent they're playing in the fall too, it places a higher emphasis on that because that is when you're going to see them going up swinging wood bats against guys who are good competition and you know in some cases you know with east coast pro area code games you know Mm -hmm. various under uh excuse me various all america games where you can see these guys which you know also is a tough setting sometimes because you have pitchers on their team coming in just airing it out for uh for an inning and you're seeing a different guy every every time up yeah uh, but i feel like you can get a, a you should have a good sense of a player's pitch recognition skills his plate discipline his approach from seeing a guy consistently throughout the summer and throughout the fall before like i, I feel pretty good about the all, all of those things both for for Clark for Jenkins uh, you know for Kevin McGonigal mm-hmm. too and then at the same time there there are certainly players in this class who who also may have a lot of you know tools uh, or athleticism or, or physical projection but uh, where they get exposed against better pitching and that yeah. becomes more of a red flag um no, no, you know, regardless of of what you're seeing in the spring, if if you might, you know, you might think you're seeing something better, but is it just because they're have they actually made an improvement in that area, or are they just facing weaker competition? Yeah, absolutely. I think kind of as you're talking about all this, and as we we think it through, it really just emphasizes how important it is to have longer histories with all these hitters and. I mean, you can really get fooled in a small sample. You cannot get a great look in a small sample. There can be environments where it's just you're not set up to succeed as a hitter, depending on the event. Like you said, with different pitchers kind of coming in for, for one AB, then brand new pitcher in the next AB. So just getting as many looks at the hitters as you can over the really, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the, the most beneficial time is to start, obviously, because we're, we're dealing in reality where you only have so much time. But having a scouting department set up to where you can get tons of looks um, from all of these players as, as underclassmen throughout the summer, during the spring, like just getting as much information as you can to, to make yourself more confident in, in what this hitter is. Hopefully the truth of, of the sort of hitter they are will um, be a little bit easier to see if you've got 
a lo- much larger sample. I mean, that, that's typically the case with hitting, and especially so at the high school level. Yeah, no, 100% agree on that. Um, we got a few questions that we can jump into here today. Uh, one from an email, which I really appreciate. Again, we've got an email set up now. Uh, apparently, they're not forwarded to Ben. I need to make sure that that changes. But I've, I've been reading your emails. And <laughs> so- someone from, from the podcast will read all of your emails, and you can send those to... Um, let me sure, make sure I give you the right email address. It's futureprojection at baseballamerica.com. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, we've got one from Bryce today. Um, really appreciate the email. I don't think I need to read the entirety. A lot of praise for the podcast, Ben. I'll, I'll send it to you after the fact, and you can check it out if you haven't yet. But Bryce appreciates to... the pod. We appreciate uh, you listening to the pod, Bryce. But um, a few interesting questions that I thought were really good. Um, the first is he says... A few episodes ago, the two of you were discussing how to improve the current grading system at BA, and one of you mentioned adding some sort of range or certainty for each tool. I really like this idea, especially down to each tool you grade. You do that for the overall future value with the risk grade, but I'd love to see see, um, some way to integrate a range or certainty or some scale for each tool. Of course, making this concise and digestible is a challenge, as well as not adding exponentially more time. Um, when it comes to top 30 lists, but I liked where that idea was going. What are your thoughts on not only assessing like various um, outcome percentages for, for a player overall, but adding in risk or uncertainty for individual tool grades, Ben? Do you think that would be valuable, or do you think it's maybe to a point where you get almost too granular? I think it it's something that would have value the main one would be the hit tool right like i don't think there's going to be much of a spread as far as uh projecting what we expect a player's arm grade to be or what we expect a player's speed to be yeah i think you know if we're talking about a like a 16 year old international signing yeah like there's some range it could go um, like Julio Rodriguez is much faster right now than I would have expected when he was 15, when he was 16 years old, mm-hmm. when he signed. So, um, you know, some guys go up, uh, a lot of guys go, uh, the opposite way as they just put on more weight. Like sometimes you see a spike initially too, like they just start to get stronger, and they get faster with more strength and then they go from, you know, 160 to 180 pounds and then they're eventually 220 and it's like, all right, well, (laughs) once you start to really fill out, then guys kind of backslide on their, um, on their speed, but, um, arm strength, again, you could see some uptick, especially for younger players. And then a lot of times the arm strength actually goes backwards Mm -hmm. in pro ball too but you wouldn't expect a lot of rate, a lot of range, a wide range of outcomes for those tools. So I think hit and, and probably power, I guess you could see a, maybe a variance in those grades, but really the, the hit has to be the big one. So I think there, there, there is value to doing it that way or, or to thinking that way. But I think just the reality of, our ability to execute (laughs) on that for all five tools grades would be, would be challenging. Maybe there's a way in a, 
you know, an AI world where yeah. we, we all become more efficient, but there yeah. are probably other areas I think that we could change that would make more impactful tweaks, um, in like a more, like a practical sense. And like, like you mentioned, like we just don't have the, the time really probably to do that. And we, even in like a time limited world, trying to do this might obfuscate what we know more than it helps. Um, but I do think it's interesting. The second point, and, and I'm glad that this is the second point that he had, uh, because you kind of got to it there in the answer to your first question, but he said, um, for batters, does the hit tool do a good job integrating a batter's eye? As a Twins fan, I know Edward Julian has an exceptional hit tool and good eye, but I'm also aware that some hitters have a good hit tool, bad eye, or other way around. Is there a need to add a separate six tool um, to account for a hitter's eye, or is that already involved enough in the hit tool grade itself? I think this is a really good question because it's something that we've discussed internally at BA and something that, that I think people don't necessarily always agree on, like how much does the hit tool capture? And I do wonder right now, we, we have a hit tool, we have a power tool, and then we even separate power between game power and raw power. And so raw power would be just the power that you see a player has in batting practice, like his actual strength. Um, how far can he physically hit the ball um, when you're just getting BP pitches thrown? You have game power that sort of combines the hit tool with the raw power, and it's like how much of that power is accessible in the game itself, um, and that kind of blends the two. I wonder if we'll ever get to a point where we basically take those two tools and think about them as three tools, and, and those three would basically be pitch recognition, which would be I, bat to ball skills, which would be how many people think of just the hit tool, and then impact ability. So I think the three biggest things that, that you do as a hitter is you decide which pitches to swing at. So that would be I, pitch recognition. Can you put the bat on the ball physically? Like, do you have advanced bat to ball skills, contact ability? And once you can do both those things, or even if you can't, like, what is your level of power and impact on the baseball? Because if you can do all three of those things well, you're going to be a great hitter. You can do two of the three and still be a really good hitter. It's, it's a lot harder to just have one of those that you kind of handle and, and you're a really good hitter as well. So I'm curious, like, like I think all three of those are, are baked into the hit and power tools and they're certainly all baked into the reports themselves. Um, but sometimes I do wonder if it'd be more beneficial to try and grade all three of those attributes rather than like a hit or a power and a raw power. What do you think about that, Ben? Yeah. When I write up a player, I do think of it separately as like plate discipline as its own skill. And I would even tease out, uh, the, a hitter's eye from his, his approach or from his plate discipline itself, because you can have, you can have the ability to recognize pitch as well, but still be like a free swinger to at least to a certain extent. Now I think you can they be a very aggressive hitter who likes to swing a lot, but is still swinging within the zone. So you have, you have good understanding of what pitches to swing at. You just are an aggressive approach, or you could be very passive and still have a poor understanding of like, what's a good pitch to swing at. Like you could just not swing a lot. And within those swings, you're still not always swinging at, optimum pitches you could you could be chasing a lot within the percentages of swings you're actually taking yeah so i think and even when we call it hit tool i, I don't even use that phrase 
myself just because well, one you could just call it hitting but the, the second is I, I think you can think of hitting as almost a, a skill that's separate from the raw physical tool of raw power or speed or arm strength and fielding could probably fit more into the skill category yeah. as well because it involves a whole bunch of different things your footwork your hands your actions your your instincts your internal clock etc mm-hmm. um but i i think it does make sense to like you, you could grade a player's if you wanted just to incorporate it all into like i don't know if i would call it a tool or not but his you know his on base his obp skill which would be separate from just the player's pure hit you know tool i guess you could call it um so i guess my question is when you when you hear hit tool like if you're saying which player do you think has the best hit tool what specific like is obp included in that or are you think of just bats of all skills ability to hit for average i would i would say it's yeah it's more batting average oriented and obviously what matters more is on base percentage but your ability to have a high batting average is a skill in itself and is part of your ability to get on base. Now within the hit tool, you know, you're you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be a 70 hitter if you, if, if you just have terrible pitch recognition skills, like you might be able to make a lot of contact, but if you're just swinging at, bad pitches all the time if you can't recognize pitches or you could just be one of those you're... players that you, you kind of have one peak year that just stands out but you're not consistently near that level because that seems inherently more streaky like right if, if the bat of balls are just falling really well for you one year then great but if you don't have that like kind of rising floor of of the the pitch recognition and the obp to help you out and to an extent power is somewhat baked into the hit tool as well because if you hit the ball harder all things being equal it's going to lead to better outcomes than somebody with let's say identical uh hand-eye coordination or bat-to-ball skills and identical pitch recognition skills if you you know whereas if you consistently hit the ball you can hit a ball with great power and it gives you a, a bigger margin for error on your contact. If you miss hit a ball and, and have a lot of power versus if you miss hit a ball and you don't, you're, a, a lazy fly out could be a home run for someone else who, who has the same quality of contact, which is a, a ton more force behind the swing, I guess. Whereas if you don't have that power, you kind of have to have perfect contact at a much higher rate. Yeah, if, if you can't hit the ball harder than 85 miles an hour, I mean, there's probably going to be some issues with like your bat speed too in terms of ability to hit uh, or to make contact with major league pitching consistently enough. But even if you have great bat to ball skill, if you have, you know, 20 power, it's hard to still be uh, a 70 or an 80 hitter at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that was a great question. I really appreciate it from Bryce. He also says he loves the two plus hour long episodes. So he wants us to keep doing them at that length, Ben. So it's always good to get that feedback that people like the long episodes because, you know, at first that was kind of a bit of a crazy thing that we wanted to do is just have them be this long, but people like them. So that's good. 
Um, we've got another question from Doug on Instagram who asks, what is your favorite non-MLB baseball venue and which one would you most like to visit? Um, so I guess one that you have been to you love and then maybe one that you um, haven't been to that you, you really want to get to. Do you have any, Ben? The I would say my favorite minor league park that I've been to is AAA Charlotte in North Carolina. It just has a, a beautiful backdrop it's it's in a it's it's a just a good ballpark all around i think the skyline behind it is great um probably a little biased because when i've been there it's been for to see the u.s especially to see the usa collegiate national team play and like on the fourth of july so it just has like a cool vibe to uh to that but i really like that Stadium, it's just like a uh, a, a cool mm-hmm. cool vibe there. Um, I um, oh, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, mine is probably also a AAA minor league field, and it's also North Carolina, but it's Durham, uh, the Bulls Park. I just think it's my favorite place to go to watch players and, and to kind of evaluate because. I mean, it's a beautiful park in general. I think the the skyline is pretty cool in downtown Durham with a few of the buildings behind it. You've got the big wall in left field. You've got the bull. Um, just just a really, like, classic-looking field. I think the same people who made Camden Yards also designed Durham Bulls Athletic Park, um, which kind of makes sense. Uh, but I also feel like it's just there's always a lot of space behind the plate, regardless of the crowds that I've seen there. Um, the viewing angle you have is low, but it's not too low. Like there are some that you feel like you're like right behind the catcher and you would want to be up a little bit higher just to get a better angle on things. And then in the opposite direction, there are some stadiums where you're just so high up that, that seeing the pitch shape is a little bit trickier or, or not as accurate as I would like it to be. And I feel like Durham has the best combination of that height, um, space behind the plate, uh, and also just cool stuff kind of around the park. So that's probably my ideal one. And I'm also just very comfortable at that stadium because I've, I've been to it so often just for, for college games, for minor league games, for stuff over the summer with USA Baseball. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why the BA office having it in Durham was so cool is because we had access to really, I feel like it's one of the best minor league parks in the country, um, just outside of like my opinion and, and the staff's opinion, which is probably pretty biased most people seem to rate that one pretty highly yeah that's a good one I, I like that part too and then the you know Doug said you know which one would you most like to visit mm-hmm. it's maybe not venue specific but what I'd love to go is so the Japanese like national high school baseball tournament uh, Koshian is just unlike anything that we have in the United States, like the the finals there will have 40,000 fans in a game to watch the two, the two high school teams play in a championship game. And even in the games leading up to that, you'll have these stadiums at like eight, nine o'clock in the morning that are just absolutely packed. Like there's nothing even, can you imagine going to see, 
don't know, like IMG Academy uh, play like Orange Lutheran. <laughs> There's like 20, 30, 40,000 people there. I mean, I, I maybe like Texas high school football is like the closest approximation I, I can think of. I don't know if there's a basketball equivalent here in the States, but yeah, more travel ball based than, than that. I don't, I don't think there's a big high school tournament specifically, but yeah, this one sounds like something unlike anything we have in the States. Yeah. It's just, it just seems like a, just such an awesome atmosphere. I mean, I could probably do without, uh, you know, high school pitchers throwing, a gazillion pitches in a span of eight, nine days. That part, obviously I'm not enamored with, but it just seems like a great atmosphere that just doesn't really have any, anything comparable that you could see here in the States at, at that level. So I'd love to just go and be a part of it, especially if there's like, you know, a big time, Japanese high school pitcher who's on the mound. I'd love to to be there for that. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, if we're talking about events like that, there there are actually a lot that I haven't been to that would I would like to go. They're not MLB. Like I've still never been to the Cape, which hopefully I can fix that this year. The Cape sounds awesome. It just sounds like a, a completely different vibe of watching games than what I'm used to during the summer. Um, it seems like just a cool environment to be in. I've never been to spring training or the Arizona fall league. I think both of those would be cool for different reasons, particularly the Arizona fall league. That one sounds awesome. Um, never been to Omaha. I think that would be a blast, but in terms of like specific venues, I think the other one too is like the DR, like seeing the academies. I think that would give me a much different perspective on, on just how things operate, seeing, seeing what it's like down there being at the academies and taking games and, and workouts in that environment would be cool. Um, just to see what it's like in another country and, and how they're doing things with um, players at similar ages that I'm watching pretty consistently. But in terms of specific venues that I think would be cool to see games in, there, there are two college fields that really jump out in terms of skylines and just like the atmosphere. The first is Eddie D Field Stadium, which is Pepperdine's field, and it's like situated right right in front of the Pacific Ocean. So so basically you're watching a game and behind you is just the ocean just opens up. It looks like one of the coolest skylines that I've seen from pictures. I think Kyle actually had that field as his Twitter uh, avatar for a while. He likes that one as well. And then the other one, it maybe is even a cooler or more dramatic skyline. I think it, it might have a case as like one of the best skylines in the entire country is Miller Park, which is BYU's field. There's just like a giant mountain in the background, and especially early in the year when it's still got like snow caps on it, it it's such a it looks like it's been photoshopped into the background. It's just like this field, and then this massive mountain just comes out of the background, and I feel like it would be just cool to take in a game there. So those are two that that I've seen pictures of, and they look awesome, and I would love to get there in person just to see what it's like. Yeah, I always like having seeing videos of players in especially in like certain parts of Venezuela where they're just like hitting the ball into the mountains. Yeah, it just looks just like so such cool. a, just like an awesome visual background or like catchers thrown from behind home plate. And they're just like a mountain, yeah. big ass mountain in the background. That's cool. One, one of the coolest fields from like an aerial view is app States. Mm -hmm. Cause app States see it all is the like time. In yeah. The middle of the mountains. And like they're, especially if you get a picture of it during like peak fall season, it, it it just feels like someone has like designed a stadium 
at the top of a mountain and you can just like look out at everything kind of unfolding beneath you. But I've also looked at pictures where like from the angle where you'd actually be sitting and you really can't see as much from those angles. It's just kind of, yeah, I was going to say it's like a good social media like engagement farm to like post that video with the hard eyes or something. And then you're there and you're probably just like, "Eh, like you can't see everything. Like kind of got to fly over it. It looks like you just have the the trees in the background. So yeah, there are a lot of cool ones. Send in your, your favorite venues that you've been to, uh, favorite venues that, that you've just seen. Like if you guys have any good options, send them out there. They're, just looking through this actually when I was thinking about places that, that I hadn't been, I saw a lot of really cool backdrops. I love like fields that are right, right in front of like a bridge in the background from like a, like that, that's like leading to a cityscape. I think those are cool. Um, so there are a lot of cool ones. So send us any, if you have them. Uh, I think that's it for today, Ben, no more questions. Um, but we've had some good ones lately, so keep them coming. If you're a listener and you haven't asked any questions before, well, what are you doing? We're going to answer them. We, we're, I think our hit rate is pretty good for answering your questions. So thanks for sending those in. Again, it's futureprojection at baseballamerica.com. You can send them to either myself or Ben on Twitter, uh, Ben on Instagram, Ben Badler, me on Twitter at Carlos Ecolazzo, and, and Ben's handles are both the same for Twitter and Instagram. Um, we also have the, the Twitter account for the podcast, which is Future Pro Pod. Any of those places you can reach out to us, but the, the emails are great, so keep them coming. Um, Ben, any, any closing remarks or thoughts or things to plug or what do you have going on? Um, anything to mention before we get out of here? Uh, if you want to go to the DR, just let me know. I'll show you around. If this is for me or the listeners. Yeah, I'd love to go. Uh, no, not an open invitation for literally anybody, but, uh, yeah, I want to go. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll, we'll get you a good tour of the, uh, the baseball academies down there. Awesome. Sounds good. All right, so yeah, nothing from me um, on the site front. See if there's anything to plug there. We we do have our new draft update. We've got a post kind of uh, looking over the the risers on the newest update. Um, we've got a bunch of MLB preview content that's going to be rolling out on the site in the coming days and weeks. Um, all of our WBC coverage that that Kyle and Jeff did while they were in Miami. Uh, is on the site now. We've got posts from Kyle from spring training, players who are staying out to scouts. I know Josh is also working on his annual posts about lower-level minor league players who are standing out to scouts. Every week we've got college coverage, so we're really kind of firing on all cylinders here um, on, on the site front. So if you're not subscribed, maybe consider it as we approach the, the start of minor league season, as we approach the start to the MLB season. We'll We'll be in full swing across all levels before we know it. Um, so check those out. And on the podcast front, if you guys haven't reviewed and maybe you want to, we appreciate that. That definitely helps in the various algorithms and all the, the podcast feeds. Um, and we just appreciate the feedback. So if there are any, any thoughts you have on how we can do the podcast differently or anything you guys want to hear from us, just let us know. I feel like we're pretty receptive. But um, Other than that, uh, for Ben, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next week.